Hey there, folks. I have Tom Rousel here with me from Survive the Jive. I um, hate to admit it, but I have just recently found your channel. I've been uh, voraciously consuming your content over the last few weeks. It's so informative and so interesting, and I've just learned so much about paganism and um, the role of Christianity in history, and you're doing such a service, uh, not just to the dissident right, but to people all over YouTube, um, you're you're a fantastic historian. So if you just want to give a little introduction and tell people who you are and your channel, and I know you have an event coming up, you can talk a little bit about that. That would be great. Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my name's Tom Rousel. I'm a historian, and uh, I was working uh, in media for years as a journalist, and later I became uh, I worked for World Health Organization as a science communication. And then I went on the side. I was always interested in medieval history and paganism and stuff because that's my sort of spiritual orientation. Um, and so I have two degrees, one in media and one in medieval history, which I was just studying specifically like the Germanic pagan religions, really. Uh, but I've been running this channel for like 10 years or more of pagan content and um and it just uh, took off in the last like five years or so. And uh, it, I, I occasionally added like stuff talking about right wing politics as well, because I'm right. I've always been a right winger. But um, long before, like the, the terms like dissident right or alt right, <laughs> I was already uh, well known in, among right wing people in this country, in Britain, my homeland. Um, but uh, when the channel took off, I was living in Sweden, where my wife is from. Now we've both moved back to England. And um, now that I'm in England, I decided to put on an event for British. It's mainly for British pagans, but a lot of uh, Christians are buying tickets as well. They're welcome to attend if they want to. And some even, I've even, I know some Catholics coming in from Ireland, flying in from Ireland to attend. So it's actually an event to a, a conference to address the problem of transhumanism, which is not specifically a problem for pagans it's a problem for many people uh but the my i assert that the that transhumanism is emerging as a substitute religion for uh various powerful individuals and uh also organizations including people affiliated closely with the un and organizations affiliated with the un like um the world the world economic forum uh that is very pro-transhumanist, but also people like Elon Musk, uh, Yuval Harari, Peter Thiel, lots of very rich and powerful people really into these ideas. And, and within transhumanism, which is a, quite a, sometimes people define it differently, but within it, there's a, the main problem I have is the post-human ideal, which is the idea that we need to evolve beyond being human. And the idea of a kind of substitute uh, ascension, a substitute transcendence, where instead of like going to heaven, like a Christian would want to, or achieving nirvana, like a Buddhist would want to, you want to replace your human consciousness with a pure artificial intelligence consciousness, where we'd all be uploaded to become pure data in the machine. And this is desirable to them. And they have a kind of messianical kind of, you know, sense that this is an inevitable future that everyone should desire. And that, that that's a problem for me as a pagan, because it goes against my beliefs and my religion. And I'm, I assert that there are many reasons that we can't uh, conform to these ideals of these elites as pagans. 
And I want to bring everyone together in London to network, meet each other, make contacts with people in the real world, which is so important. You can make friends, you can make uh, new colleagues, you can make all kinds of uh, connections that can be important in in the future for your life and uh, your well-being. And I want to outline in my talk and also in my uh, the other the other speaker who is Dr. Borja Villajonga, who is coming in from uh, Spain or Catalonia, as he'd say, and um, he is a, a, an expert on the survival of religious traditions in modernity within modernity. Mm-hmm. And we are going to just really outline what it is that we as pagans have to believe that regarding death, for example, we do not believe that death is something to be overcome or avoided. Death is a route to our ultimate uh, desirable end. We need to die. And so any philosophies such as transhumanism, which claim that death is just, you know, uh, an entropy in the biological world is something that can be overcome through science and it should be overcome. And that uh, if not, not wanting to overcome it is worshipping death or something like that. Even if it is worshipping death, I don't care. That's actually attested within paganism. Worshipping a god of death is fine. We, we see death as good. And there's other things. But basically, if you are in Britain on the 25th of June, or you would like to come to Britain for the 25th of June, you could get your tickets for this event, which is called Pagan Futures. And it's going to be in- I've linked that below um, as well for those of you that are interested. But that's a perfect segue. I actually have a lot of questions about this. Um, I remember when I was a militant atheist, I I watched a movie on the singularity. And I found this concept of, of everlasting consciousness uploaded to be so reassuring. I was like, well, I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. And then when I um, uh, resurrected my, my Catholic faith, I, I look upon this and I find that such a horrifying concept, like being stuck in a box or or kind of relinquishing your humanity in that way. I, I find it deeply offensive. So it's funny that that this is um, kind of the breadth of what you're going to be talking about, because it, I think that that is going to be the fissure. It's not going to be um, pagans and Catholics or pagans and Christians. I think that we have a lot in common. It's going to be uh, Christians and pagans, and then we're going to be fighting these transhumanists. Um, but in terms of, you made a really good video about this, um, technology versus ancient spirituality. Um, do you think that our, our truer selves have been adulterated under the guise of, of advancement? Well, it's, it's a difficult pro- question because I don't think that technology and the desire to advance technology is bad. Or, or at odds with my religion or my beliefs, or probably really any beliefs. There's all kinds of you know advances in technology that can be great. And like we're right now, we're you know talking on these microphones and using these laptops or to, and the internet to communicate and broadcast it. So it's a wonderful thing that didn't exist when I was a child. And uh, I don't have any objection to technology. And I think you know generally. For example, the 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 chariot, you know, it was, a, it was only developed about four thousand years ago. But within since then, it became in it became in many religions from India to Greece, etc., the natural conveyance of the gods. And even in the Bible, there was reference to chariots and you know horse. The horse is like I see a white horse. You know, like the signs of the end times in the Bible are represented with. The horse and the horse was only domesticated properly within the last 5,000 years 
by white people actually on the um on uh, somewhere in the region of the Ural Mountains among the fantastic culture. It had been domesticated earlier than that, uh, but it wasn't a, a very good animal to ride. But the, the selective breeding process that made horses valid, that's a kind of technology, selective breeding. Um, it's kind of like a primitive form of genetic modification. Right. There's nothing wrong with that as a as an actual um, action, like, you know, to, to, to breed animals in a certain way to make them better for, for work or better for eating or to, you know, make technology to make transport easier, communications easier. It's what you, it's how you do it. And when you when when you do use those these developments in a way that go against the the, the laws of your religion, that's when it's a problem for as a, from a religious perspective. So, yeah. So where do you really draw the line um, in terms of I guess the next uh, the next phase of this is going to be modifications to the body. If if you, there are neural implants, for example, that can prevent seizures, um, do you think that that is a legitimate use of technology without crossing that barrier that um, really uh, sort of destroys this element of humanity? Well, it's a, re it's a really good question because, of course, there's nothing in our there's nothing in our tradition that specifically outlines what we can and can't do with genetic modification because it, they didn't dream of such things, and it's not in the Bible either. So, you as Christians have to talk about that. I would say that the objective of trying to reduce the amount of suffering caused by uh, congenital diseases is is good. That's okay, but um, and and then genetic modification is is not it, there's many different ways of gene editing like but not there's not many now but there, there are many ways that could be developed uh, and gene editing in my view uh, i have i've fleshed this argument out but i think that modifying uh, genetic modification which removes faulty genes is permissible uh, genetic modification that implants non-human genes into humans is not permissible regardless right, right. Of, um, <laughs> of the uh, of the result even if it would uh, prevent you know problems for that person i don't think you can put non-human genes into a human um and uh, also i would say adding human genes into uh a, a, don't come from the non-inherited genes for example if you are there will be like designer baby options probably on the market not very long from now where you could just say take the best possible genes from the mother and father to have a child that's one thing where you're like you're just because when when two people have a baby it's kind of a, a roll of the dice which genes you're going to get from your mum and which one from your dad and you could get the worst from both and that wouldn't you would <laughs> very happy about that or you get the best from both and that would be two very different people as anyone who's got brothers and sisters knows just because you have the same parents doesn't mean you're the same you can be very different so there's a huge um random chance involved in the genetic lottery of birth uh, and genetic mod um gene editing or whatever genetic technologies will exist will probably result in a way to put stack those odds of the genetic lottery more in favor of the baby so that's we're, we're definitely already seeing that i have a friend with uh, marfan's disease and he just did ivf with his wife uh so that their child does not get marfan's disease and and on its face i'm fine with this but i think in most cases of ivf um 
embryos are destroyed. And so that's really where I get hung up on this. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm seeing a lot in the live chat, the genetic modification and eugenics, eugenics, eugenics. When, when you have a mate selection or a personal preference, um, you all you are in some ways engaging in eugenics you want the best looking person um that that you're attracted to and it is a lot uh like selection with dogs and other animals in that way so i think that people kind of get the wrong idea when people start talking about eugenics there are some some natural choices that we make that are eugenic and dysgenic for that matter absolutely well i think that for the most part love <clears throat> courtship and sex are discriminatory and mm -hmm and tend towards eugenics. Well, they can be dysgenic choices, especially in, in an environment where um, sexual pairing is not based on, uh, is not, it doesn't, isn't based so much on the, uh, the long-term strategies for, you know, uh, healthy breeding, but that's another topic. But yeah, I, <laughs> as I was, I was trying to say the, the, the problem of, choosing the best genes of two parents is one that's one question and i'm probably not so uh, opposed to that but the idea of and this also exists now of taking genes from third parties and adding them in where necessary for example in china just before the covid uh, controversy which many believe was uh, from a chinese laboratory but maybe it w i think it was man-made whatever it came from but um there was a controversy in China because a rogue scientist, allegedly, the Chinese government says he was working without their consent, um, but they were very slow to condemn him. He started, he made CRISPR babies. CRISPR is a, a form right. of gene editing. And he used, what he did is he took some Chinese babies. He made Chinese babies which were resistant to AIDS or whatever it's, AIDS, HIV AIDS or, one, you know, I can't remember what people, what people confuse AIDS, GRIDS and HIV or whatever. But anyway, there's a, there's a gene that Northern Europeans have, Nordic people, that makes them extremely resistant to this condition. And uh, they basically put that gene into Chinese babies. So I don't believe that should be done. I don't think you, if you want to get a gene from a certain person, you have to read with, with that them. person. Right. Uh, and I don't think you can just like splice people into chimerical creatures. Like, it's very bizarre. Yeah. And I fear that with um, IVF that we've already kind of gone down that that road. Um, but then it, it's preventing some of these diseases. So I'm, I'm very conflicted about the matter. But in Catholicism, this is all out. <laughs> you can't do it. You just have to roll the dice and and hope mm -hmm. that um, that your child has the best of both parents. Um, I did watch a video of yours about Neanderthal DNA. I thought this was so interesting because I did a 23andMe before I knew that uh, my genetic information was going to be uploaded and sold to all of these people. Um, <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have done it, but I do have this information now. And I think it's said that I have more Neanderthal DNA than like 90% of people. And when I, when I read that, I started to think, wow, like, uh, I wonder if I'm of lesser intelligence or, but I watched this video of yours and um, you, you had kind of a personality profile of Neanderthals and it was so absolutely spot on with the, the loneliness and the personality traits and kind of the depression, the late nights. Um, I was wondering if you had any information about this in terms of, um, are people with higher Neanderthal DNA, are they, um, more prone to substance abuse issues? And if you had any, um, information about IQ distributions, that'd be very helpful. Well, I I should add first, and I might, I might not have made that clear, and that video was made in 2017, so it's 
a long time ago now, but that basically the correlation is not causation. So all these things happen uh, associated with people having higher levels of Neanderthal DNA. And actually, I'd say overall in the human population, there's certainly a correlation with higher IQ with more Neanderthal DNA. That does not mean that Neanderthal DNA makes you more intelligent. It doesn't mean that at all, because we've got to recognize that um, the populations with with the highest Neanderthal DNA is Europe. In is only Eurasians have it, and generally we're looking mostly at Europeans having more higher levels of it, and Middle Easterners. And uh, there have been like it's been more than forty thousand years since they went extinct, and you can get very significant evolutionary changes uh, in a in a population within only five thousand years. So many of these things could be have emerged much more recently. And the fact that they emerge in populations with high levels of Neanderthal DNA is, is besides the point. It's irrelevant, perhaps. It might not be. I don't know. Um, but yeah, um, behavioral genetics and population genetics aren't 100% the same thing. And um, even though we're seeing these behavioral traits are common, like people with Neanderthal DNA are associated with more introspective behaviors, perhaps. That doesn't mean it comes from Neanderthals. We should think of Neanderthals as being a race of emos or something. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure it even matters if it's causal, though. It's just nice to know um, if the, if you're connected with other people that are like you genetically uh, in personality traits. I think that that intersection is um, is really interesting. Those are the only questions I had about Neanderthal DNA. Um, but uh, I've been asking the guests that I've had on in the last year, and I think that um, it would be really good to get this information from you because you seem very positive and optimistic, um, especially with Americans that feel disconnected from their heritage. They feel like they don't really have a homeland in, in their hearts, even though we're all European. Um, how can Americans in particular reconnect with their heritage um, and kind of uh, steal themselves from the societal decline? Because I think that we're struggling uniquely in that we aren't around people that are that are like us and Europeans have this bond and I think intellectually and emotionally they're they're maybe better able to handle what's going on in the world than we are I don't and maybe that's true I don't know uh, uh, it might be true a lot of people are suffering back in Europe as well and struggling but Europe oh, yes, is yeah. different from place to place just as the states you know Idaho is not the same as California in terms of demographics and everything like <laughs> no indeed so, so, um, and culture, uh, but, uh, yeah, I would say that, you know, people have moved around a lot in history and that's something population genetics is showing. Um, they also stay still for a long time as well. So, you know, but they don't stay still forever. So some people can be stay in an area for a thousand, 2000 years, and then suddenly they uproot and then they stay in another place for a thousand, 2000, 3000 years but they do move around. And then when they move around, there has to be, a, there'll be an appropriate change. I've said this in my, my ideas about what paganism is, that region is important and ethnicity is important. But I keep those as two separate aspects of paganism because you, you have, your ethnicity is in the blood and there's a, and culture, but, um, and that can be, that is usually tied to the land, but when people are uprooted and go to another land, then there needs to be a new synthesis of like the the, the ethnos and the the, the the place. And that happens. Like, for example, the Anglo-Saxons, there are Germanic people from Denmark and Germany 
mainly, and they came to England and made it theirs, and they're, they're sort of integrated into the the, the, the the process of migration became integrated into their origin myths. And you see similar things in some Native American cultures, like the Ojibwe uh, in the, seventh, uh, the 18th century, I think it was, or 17th century, un, uh, underwent a massive migration uh, forced uh, off their land by other tribes. And that became, that migration got integrated into their religious stories of like divine heroes and the, their gods and spirits and things. So it's like, uh, and of course the Bible is, has migration, the, the migration of the Hebrews from Egypt to Israel. That event, that event may never have happened, uh, or over it did happen. It might, some historians think it might've been, they migrated from Saudi Arabia into Israel rather than they just added Egypt because Egypt was more famous for the story. But um, it, 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 whether it happened or not, um, it's the point is that there probably was a migration that needed to be integrated into a into a religious narrative. So it just shows that like the divine, uh, the, the 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 sacred and the profane have an intersection, and you you need to be close to your god or gods uh, at, in physical sense as, as well. So for most people in Christianity, that's a church, um, but you know there has to be something taking you back to your roots as well. So having, I think that Americans need to kind of sanctify the settling of the Americas. I think that the process of colonizing the Americas should be sanctified and like considered a divine moment in their history. And that was the case among, it was that case among early Puritans where they, they conceived of, you know, manifest destiny and stuff like this was God's will for them. And that, that, psychological uh, perspective is the normal human perspective for all history for any migration you'll see that people always integrate the the divine into the the migration you know story uh, and that needs to be done uh, I, I think that we had done a pretty good job of that. I mean, by the mid 19th century, 80 to 90 percent of all Americans were um, direct descendants of the of the settlers. But we've become such an integrated society. I mean, only six, 65 percent of America is white at this point. Um, so how do we do that in the face of the, this forced diversity initiative and, and mass immigration, which seems to have um, no end? I think you got to stick to your guns. Like the, the same thing here in England. Where literally, trying, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't, we don't have any guns in that literal sense to stick to here in England. But I mean, stick to your guns as in, I mean, referring to your, 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 the traditional narratives of the, of, uh, the ethnogenesis, of the, of the roots of the nation. Like we have the same exact thing happening in England where we conceived of England for thousands of years as, as being rooted in mainly in the Anglo-Saxon migrations, but to a lesser extent in earlier events, like such as the Roman Britons and later events such as Norman conquest, but like the ethnogenesis and the founding of the English people is with the Anglo-Saxons and Alfred and blah, blah, blah. And that was fine for hundreds of years. And now there's a really steady like attempt to say, no, 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 it's a, it's not that you, you don't, you can't say that they even want to ban the word Anglo-Saxon, which I made a big pushback against in 2019. Uh, and, and I'm still being attacked for by furious uh, medievalists in America mainly, but um, also in Canada and Britain. But they um, they want to, you know, just like they disrupted the American um, founding myth. It was always, you know, the founding fathers, the Puritans, you know, the 18th century uh, uh, to a great degree, but, you know, earlier as well. But then it like start the disruption starts when it becomes the Ellis Island myth instead. 
like a great example of how successful, even before all like the non-white immigrants came, like this Ellis Island myth of like the melting pot, which mostly referred to white immigrants, was disruptive to the Americanism because it fails to provide an incentive for integration. If you're, if you're no longer saying this is what an American is, and, and that's what happened earlier on. The, in the early 90s, a huge number of um, white Americans identified as having British ancestry. And by the late 90s, I wish I could tell you the exact numbers, but uh, it, it's a good study. Exact, by the end of the 90s, in that 10-year period, that had dropped by like 40% or something. So mm. what happened over the 90s where mm. people no longer identified with uh, having British roots? The, the, that's an interesting... That I, I don't know exactly, but it's going to have a lot to do with the demonization of Britishness and like British ancestry in, in America was never really Britishness. It was Americanness because... The, the founding fathers were British people and the Germans who outnumbered them, a lot of the English, integrated into the English culture. It wasn't the other way around. They had found the elites were English and the Germans and Dutch had to become like them. And that process created the early American culture. And mm. that, was what, that was the culture to which other later immigrants like the Irish had to assimilate. Uh, except that with this new, new Ellis Island melting pot myth, there's no reason for that. And instead, it's like stick to your own old culture and hold the host culture in um, in contempt. That's definitely true. Um, we're really struggling with that as Americans. And and perhaps uh, in some ways, it's reassuring for me to to hear you say that you guys are, are struggling as well, because I have this um, vision of Europeans kind of banding together but you're dealing with uh, some of the same problems and some, you know, more difficult problems. Um, in terms of how we're living now, uh, what do you think we can do in our daily lives that would make our descendants proud or fortify their positions within our countries, make their lives a little easier? I have a young daughter and I just look at her and I, it, it breaks my heart that I'm handing her a worse world. Um, what can we do to, to give our children better lives than we're anticipating we're going to well i you can't second guess every event in geopolitics you can't i can't probably predict very many of them accurately at all but you there are some things that are constant so you know having good literacy skills having ability to uh, adapt so teaching children to be capable of adapting to change is going to be useful because we don't know what's going to happen. We know there will be changes. So they need to be agile in their ability to, to assimilate the changes. So in that sense, they should, you should at once equip them with skills with, to use like the, 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 you know, technology that is so pervasive in our world, but at the same time, also skills that they don't need that technology in, in a certain scenario. So, you know, knowing how to, you know, having healthy bodies, knowing how to use their bodies, how to grow food, how to, identify uh, food in, in the natural environment, how to, to uh, understand the natural environment. Uh, those are all timeless skills. So those are important. And as far as our ancestors are concerned, um, well, for me, that's an, a part of my religion that I have to honor my ancestors and that doing so is literally beneficial to their um, existence in the next world. So they they benefit from that. So for me, that can be, no teaching them my i teach my i'll teach my children the names of their ancestors going back show them their family tree and teach them about it and that's not 
pagan that specific that's not uniquely pagan that's something many people should do uh but then within paganism we'd also say offer uh you know like incense for them like candle for them or offer food to them or something like this um this is something that preserved in some christian festivals where uh, in europe where people even lay lay an extra space at the table or the dinner table during christmas or whatever which is for the dead ancestors to to be present but um yeah i i think that they will appreciate being remembered uh that's one thing and of course you know the value system of your 16th century protestant ancestors is very different to your 10th century catholic ancestors is very different to your 6th century pagan ancestors so when you say like upholding the values of ancestors we know that their their values were in flux to some extent throughout history as well but there are some things that are eternal and wherever wherever they are now i believe they appreciate us remembering them and teaching our children to remember them and continue what what, what happened before so that we don't live in a kind of a future which is divorced from the cycle of time. It's, 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 we want atomized uh, people who are just living in terms of their consumption, of their consumer behaviors, you know, in a world of just data and algorithms. They're people who are deeply connected to something that cannot be bought or sold, their own ancestry, their own cultural heritage. That's what we need to make children into. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's a good transition to a discussion of paganism. Um, I'm woefully ignorant <laughs> of uh, pagan rituals, but my understanding is that it is an intuitive religion based on um, the rules and laws of nature. Do you think that that is an accurate description? Uh, I think that's a popular uh, conception of it, and that might be that might be actually true for a lot of people who call themselves pagans today, um, because the revival of paganism, sometimes called neo-paganism, has to some extent been associated with a kind of, 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 of an intuitive spirituality where people sort of appreciate nature and feel like they can come to an understanding of divinity through their intuitions. But actually, that's not what any of the pagan religions were. Um, they, they did have uh involved they did involve certain reverence of elements of the natural world for certain and i uh myself consider the natural world you know to the con the divine is contained within the natural world but you can't call saint francis of assisi a pagan because he liked animals you can't say that you know right. the mennonites who live like close to nature or whatever like in are pagans they're christians you know so paganism is very much about it is a belief system uh, and it's defined by ritual sacrifice, basically. So sacrifice is part of Christianity too, but the sacrifice has been replaced by Christ's. Christ has made sacrifice redundant by becoming the sacrifice. But um, this is like really lived in the process of the Eucharist, where you part participate in, you know, the, you, you share the blood, the body, and the blood of Christ. So the same principles are in all, all religions and pagan religions are just, paganism is a kind of a broad umbrella term for many sort of polytheistic religions that existed across Europe before Christianity, but they were all related. And they're not always hugely distinct from other kinds of religions that you find in all other parts of the world that humans engage in. But basically there's an idea that the divine, uh, is, prop the divine is proper and right for the divine to be honored 
with offerings. And um, the earliest religions, pagan religions, is always blood sacrifice. And that's in the Old Testament too, you know, with like the Cain and Abel even. And, um, you know, the early Hebrews sacrificed uh, animals and Jews today actually do their chicken sacrifice and Muslims do still do a cow sacrifice. So Abrahamic religions, it's not just a case of pagans do it and Abrahamic religions don't. Um, but a lot of the pagan religions moved away from blood sacrifice. For example, Hinduism comes out of a kind of European paganism that of, of, of Europeans called the Aryans who invaded India in the Bronze Age. But they don't sacrifice animals. Well, they do sometimes. Some low-caste people do. But generally, high-caste Indians find the idea of blood sacrifice abominable. And they replace it with uh, other things like incense or libations. And the ancient world, like you can see in Greco-Roman religions, they had um, libations of milk or wine or whatever. And um, same in other Germanic, in other pagan religions, like libations, the word God um, is contested etymology, but it comes from Germanic paganism. And it's thought to come from a word meaning to pour out. So the idea of pouring out a lit liquid, usually alcoholic, like mead or beer, but also sometimes milk, um, as, a, as an offering, uh, was something that went right back into the very definition of what a god is and where we take the word god. Uh, but yeah, the, the basic principle is like we've been given but so much by the gods, we give something back. Right. And that, that, that's like a sign of appreciation. So even if blood sacrifice is not really very common in modern pagan practice, but it has to be something, whether it's a candle or a glass of milk or whatever, it has to be something. And that, I think, is the basic core of paganism. So we probably have more in common than um, than, than Catholics understand about pagans. Um, but I have heard you say that that both pagans and Catholics are fighting, I don't want to mischaracterize what you said, but fighting an uphill battle in terms of returning to um, an authentic faith. Is it possible to find this in traditional Catholicism? Uh, I tried to for a long time. My background is Catholic. Uh, I then went through an atheist stage like you. And then I did think I'd like to, I didn't want to be a pagan because even though I felt like paganism was the true religion, but I didn't want to be it because I didn't like pagans. Uh, I, thought <laughs> were, I, did, I thought they were cringe. Yeah. But, um, and then, um, so I tried to attend mass, but I did uh, many times again. I didn't, for me, it, the, the, the Catholic church has been very, I mean, I'd probably now have to tell you the Catholic church has been very compromised and um, it isn't what it used to be. Uh, and um, I, I mean, I don't want to have a get in the discussion about what the true religion is, but there is a good, good, the best reason to be a Christian is that you believe that Christ was, is God, who is also his son sent to redeem us for our sins uh, and that he was killed and that he was reborn. The, you have, these are the actual things you have to believe. And if you believe them, then you are a Christian. It's so it's not really a choice like, you either believe them or you don't. If you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. And uh, that, that, that's what it comes down to rather than choosing the right religion. Do you believe that? If so, you're a Christian. However, um, there is some gray area because you can, you can't, you have to believe that to be a Christian. Right. But in paganism, you don't have, there aren't conditions of belief. So King Radwald of East Anglia, for example, Anglo-Saxon, was said he believed that. 
but he also worshipped the gods. And so he put an idol of Christ next to Woden and Thunor and the other gods, and he had them all in his temple. He's like, as far as he is concerned, Jesus was another god among many, and he was happy to worship them all. So pagans don't exclude Christ. You don't, you don't have to exclude it, but Christians have to exclude the pagan gods. Right. So he, could he be called a Christian? He, probably not. Um, but uh, yeah, but there are similar problems faced for anyone faces, regardless of their faith, any Westerner especially, um, but not just Westerners even. I think it's, it used to be 100 years ago, very much a Western problem, but now it's a global problem. And the problem is that the world is becoming disenchanted and it, it's, not, it's moving towards a kind of militant materialism that doesn't leave room for any religion, except when the religion is, is useful for it to, to mm -hmm. achieve it. So it will sometimes pay lip service towards any religion that might be uh, when, when, it, when it's advantage, advantageous for it to do so. But generally, that the uphill battle is against uh, materialism, scientism, um, the disenchantment of the world. So in that way, do you think that pagans and Christians are even at odds? I have a lot of pagan friends. I find us seeking each other out in these times that we have to... Um, circle the wagon to to protect mm. western values uh but if that is achieved um are we going to fracture upon these upon these lines well there are <laughs> that, that that's a big hypothet hypothetical so <laughs> yes um, it is <laughs> we, we, if we if we ever get that far that would be a nice um a nice place to have gotten to but the the point is though that you know it is it's rather futile and pointless um, arguing the, diff, you know, the, the benefits and or, um, merits and whatever of the two religions and, and saying that in this stage, which religion is it going to be? You are, if you believe in it, you believe in it. And that's what a lot of religion is based on. But the, we are, have a lot of mutual goals, a mutual, mutual problems, a mutual enemies. So yeah, I think good to, rather prudent to focus on those there is indeed within christianity and a, a core a thing like tenet that you have to reject paganism mm -hmm. and that can't unless that's taken out of the bible then it's not it's never going to go away and um uh obviously the modern Christianity has taken many things out of the Bible that it says very clearly that you that Christians have to do, but Christians don't do it. Um, but you know, I think um, uh, this is one of those things that is it, 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 it's, it, it raises a problem. But I, I'd like to see a peaceful and uh, happy relationship between pagans and uh, and other religions. But it isn't um, a, it isn't a tenet of paganism that we have to kill people who belong to other religions. It isn't uh, we don't have to do anything like that. But if someone does attacks you in, in in germanic paganism you have to fight back even if it's even if the outcome of fighting back would be bad like even if you know fighting back would make things worse you still have to so you, you have to be willing to die at any moment if anyone attacks your group you have to fight back and if you don't you go to hell so and you get the punishment. really so you have to you have to fight you have to retaliate which makes, and you have to take revenge. So you have, a, as a Christian, the option to forgive. We don't have that. You cannot ah, forgive. This you appeals have, to me. You have to get revenge. 
So perhaps I'm talking to the wrong person because I've been faltering a bit in my Catholicism lately um, with this concept of forgiveness, just just constant forgiveness, forgiving your enemies, because in my heart is uh, just the desire for revenge and anger. And I'm just like, what do I do with all of this mm-hmm. with all you know like i look at fauci and i'm like Duh! like aren't these people gonna pay and then uh you know i'll go to church and they'll be like you have to forgive your enemies you have to love your enemies love your like what about all the hate what about all the hate in my heart what do i do with mm-hmm. that it's a, it's a natural mm-hmm. instinct it's a natural emotion mm-hmm. um so i i, I kind of want to get back to this catholicism thing a little bit i know it's um I, I might be beating a dead horse but this is something a bit personal um aren't all institutions, including paganism, destined to be corrupted by men? Even 14th century Catholics were subjected to this issue. And I know things have really gone off the rails in Catholicism. Um, But I know you said you don't want to choose the one true faith, but is paganism the way to deepen our faith? What are Catholics, especially Catholics that are in post-Vatican II churches, but dissatisfied with the way um, that they're being run? What, what What do we do? Um, well, I obviously think paganism is the way. That's why I've devoted my life to it. Uh, the the paganism, the problem, one thing with paganism is you can see like the, the gods of the English are not the same gods of the Irish or the Lithuanians. But in paganism, they didn't go around thinking, oh, the, the gods of the Lithuanians are real and the gods of the Germans are fake and make believe and they're all just dumb in Germany. So it's only that, you know, it wasn't like that. It's just they thought that the way the divine is revealed to different peoples is different. So they give different names to their gods, but it's the same gods. They have different myths about the gods, but it's the same gods. And that isn't just different in the European religions. They even extended that to you know non-Europeans like the Egyptians. The Greeks and the Egyptians understood that they were essentially worshiping the same gods, but they just had different names and ways of doing it. So in that perspective, I'm a perennialist, like uh, some of the traditionalist authors, like Julius Eveler. They had this idea that, like, there is a, a, a divine truth that is is not revealed to just one race at one point in history, but everyone has access to it. But it's different because races are different, people are different, cultures are different, and they they will therefore engage with the divine in a different way. Just as actually, men and women have different forms of spirituality. Right, that, right tend to as well like that's natural because the world as we experience it is full of diversity that's how it's been made and so is not is it not natural therefore that the divine would be would be made manifest or revealed to mankind through diversity through the diverse forms that it, that it can be experienced uh to me that means the the way i can't see the gods i've never met them but the i know they exist i know the divine exists and i think that the best way for me as an englishman to engage with the divine is through the traditions of my ancestors uh, because those have been developed in a way that is proper to my people in this region so that i've got the best chance of developing a healthy relationship with the divine in that way there are problems of course because of lack of sources and whatever but um that's my that's my opinion on on you know why paganism is right but it's with the caveat that that doesn't make other people who do things differently wrong it's not a a zero-sum game 
So what does it look like in your life when, when God has revealed himself to you? Uh, well, sometimes it's, um, I, I experience the divine in different stages in different ways because when for me the divine is many gods and some of those gods will be experienced in a very different way to others um as i say i've never i don't see a god but i can see i have moments where i experience a divine sometimes i've been praying uh, and i experience during prayer i can experience that other times i just sitting and being quiet and present in the moment and there are techniques of prayer and meditation from various cultures that help you to get into that that sort of frame of mind i think that you for me it was very much a good step forward for me when i let stop living in the city because when i lived in london for seven or eight years i did find it very difficult to see the divine or to feel its presence uh and I used to spend a lot of time in graveyards in London just because that was the closest thing I could do. Like, at least I could feel the presence of the dead. And that that connected me to something. And that was as close as I could get. But then when I, just out here now, I look out the window and there's all these glorious trees and things. So this is, I don't, when people say pagans worship trees, it's not really true. Don't think trees are divine. But when you can see like the glory of nature and consider that, the divine exists within it because although we have a creator, we can believe in a creator. Many plagan religions believe there was a God who created the, 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 the world that we have, but we don't believe that necessarily it's something that the divine, that the, that matter exists outside of the divine mm -hmm. because that doesn't make sense. That doesn't theologically make sense. It becomes an absurdity because matter is something other than divine. There are some like pagans who argued similar things from that, but I uh, object to those. So I don't believe in that matter is the source of evil as some Platonists argued, um, but rather I, sub I subscribe to the idea which other Platonists argue and also which is general in paganism, that matter is inferior to the divine. It isn't, you can't say that this is the tree is a God, but that, mat that the divine uh, exists within the, the superior and therefore larger divine, uh, the divine. So matter is within the divine. So that, in that sense, even we ourselves contain an element of the divine. And uh, that is the best part of us. So we have to uh, nurture that part of us. And um, I believe that part when we die re re returns to the divine. It becomes back, it resumes, it resumes being what it was always, which is part of the divine. Right. And I think that there is this great intersection between paganism and Christianity um, in uh, not necessarily worshiping, but seeing divinity through fertility and through the growth of the family. And we both have young children and, and nothing in my life has shown me God's presence in the way um, that, that having children has and, and giving that gift to my child of, of, her existence and, and her birth. And that's been such a, a wonderful and enlightening experience. And um, what, what makes me the most sad about our current state in society is that people are being, being robbed of this wonderful, enriching thing that would bring all of us closer to our God or your gods or, or divinity, however people see it. Um, and I think that if we can fix that, perhaps that's the way 
that we all return to a more hopeful, a more centered society, a more faithful society. Yeah, I think so. I think con- being really conscious of when you're doing quite simple things, but it's so natural, like, you know, having a child, you're doing things that have been done over and over and over for countless millennia and you're really feeling the same you're, you're feeling the exact experiences that ancestors have sp- felt before to bring you to into existence and you're participating in this great chain of existence so it's humbling and grounding and 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 makes you understand your place in the in the universe a lot better i think but also just being present in the moment is really i think um a really great way of accessing the divine just remembering like that instead of always remembering the past or being afraid of the future just being in the present and feeling like everything is one thing uh like the totality of time is very there's a lot of uh, peace in the present actually that's true if you you learn that that uh, technique and there's so much we can't predict about what's going to happen in this brave new world that's emerging but we can we always have the freedom of the of the moment that's true and then i i just had one question one last question for you um and that might have been your answer but but how do we find hope um in ourselves and in our families and and try to maintain something of a positive attitude while we're experiencing this this grave societal and western decline maintaining a positive attitude well it's a hard one but i always think um there's that what i said before about that that's a little technique there's reading i find reading the right books is really helpful because every problem that you encounter in life has been encountered by countless generations true and there are very there are much much wiser men than than i or probably any youtuber today have written down solutions to these problems long before so you just have to find them and um and i think engaging with to me the old reading really old books is so um so liberating because it puts you into a mindset that you're introduced to a perspective that's so alien to everything around us and we're constantly barraged by this um this illusion that like the the, the values that are imposed on us in our schools and on the television and everything are normal but you really <laughs> that they are so abnormal so odd when you look at um ancient texts from our own culture from the as westerners from ancient greece from the sagas of the icelanders or also from other cultures around the world as well like because they're also much more sane than what's going on now uh, indeed and then that's also a way to connect to our ancestors as well. Um, you talk about the the great chain of civilization through uh, childbirth, but we can also reconnect with our ancestors by reading their texts. Um, on that note, it was it was so lovely to talk to you. You have such a great channel. All of my audience that may be watching, I am still around. I've um, lost some hope and it may have been affecting my motivation on my YouTube channel. Uh, but you can find hope in survive the jive and his wonderful channel. So thank you so much for joining me, Tom, his links are below, um, to his upcoming event in June and please check that out. And I hope to talk to you soon, Tom. Thank you very much again for having me, Rebecca. It's been wonderful talking to you. You too.